0: All right, Scott, why don't you walk us through the disciplines? Okay. All right, if you have your notebook, grab it and turn it to the back side. That'd be great. It is it's really good to see all of you again. Uh, I just want to thank you again for getting here. Um, and, and here's why. When you, when you are here with us this morning like this, um, here's what's happening. Grace Bible Church is growing stronger. And it's growing stronger because the men of the church are investing in their relationships with each other in the body. And, and the result of that is that the body itself becomes more strong and becomes more equipped to serve the Lord. So thank you for coming. Thank you for serving our church. We recognize that it would be easier to be still at home, horizontal, but thank you for being here and for being vertical and uh, having your eyes open and your ears open and preparing your heart. So thank you. It's a blessing. Um, We're going to talk about the disciplines today. Um, We're going to use primarily just scripture in each one of the six areas, and we're going to talk about how those, those areas are important in our walk with the Lord. So if you have your Bible, would you open it? Um, open it to Luke chapter 6, verse 45. If you don't have your Bible, take your device and tap on your device to Luke chapter 6, verse 45. That works too. This passage is pretty important because it tells us about what comes out of our heart and the relationship between our heart and what we say. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good man... Out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So the condition of your heart controls what you say. The condition of your heart controls what you think. The condition of your heart controls what you do. So what that means is whatever I allow to inform my heart, will play a large role, will dictate what I say and what I think and what I do. The psalmist knew this, and so he endeavored to inform his heart only with truth from God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart so that I may not sin against you. So be thoughtful about what you allow to inform your heart. When you're given the opportunity, always use God's Word. To inform your heart. Because whether you like it or not, the first place that the effect of your heart shepherding is going to be realized is in your own home. So listen to this verse, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And think again about relationships. In this context, think about relationships that are taking place in your own home whether you're a kid, whether you're a parent, whether you're a spouse, whatever you are, think about this and the relationships that that come forth from this. And think again about the Word. This is Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see the relationship between your heart shepherding and a God-honoring home when the Word of Christ is richly dwelling within you there is teaching and there is admonishing that's going to happen in a way that is winsome and it's effective and it's fruitful and it's a good thing, it's very productive it's very helpful so a well-nourished, well-informed well-counseled heart has direct bearing on the relationships in your home so let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That means you, you have your Bible open on a regular basis. That means that you're praying about what you're reading. and You're asking the Lord to apply it to your heart and, and give you the wisdom to use that in your own home. There is going to be teaching. There is going to be admonishing. It's going to take one form or another. It's a very effective teaching and it's a very effective admonishing when, when the words come from one who has been shepherding their own heart with God's word. Our third discipline is the ministry. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 8 through 19. This is a, a passage that talks about gifts. What we want to remember here is that gifts are given for the common good of the body. God's design is that the man who has disciplined his heart and his home is ready to function well in the local church. Let me just read... Starting in verse 7, I guess, and I'm going to skip ahead down through verse 19. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge. And there's a long list of gifts that are given, tongues and so forth. Drop down to verse 16. This is what the ear says. Paul is using the analogy of the body and he says, if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of this body. And drop down to verse 19. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Verse 7 again, we remind ourselves that gifts are given for the common good. The growth, and the strengthening, the encouragement, the edification of a body. That's what the gifts are given for. But take a look again at verse 16. You notice the discontentment on the part of the ear? He has done such a poor job of shepherding his own heart that he's disappointed by the gifting that he received from the Spirit. He sees gifts in other guys and he wants those. He wants to be an eye instead of being an ear. And look at the result that he does. He distances himself from the body and he says, I'm not a part of this body. I'm going to distance myself because I'm, I'm disappointed and I'm dissatisfied with the gifting that I've been given. And look at the cost in verse 19. Paul says, where would the body be? Where does the body go when it's missing valuable, vital parts? It doesn't go anywhere good. So a man needs to be in the Word so he understands the things that the the Spirit has given to each one of us. That has a direct bearing on the way that the body functions together. So think carefully about that. Our fourth discipline is the qualifications. They're given in First Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, the qualifications for being a deacon. We're going to be looking at these again in another month or so. I just want to encourage you to review that list with some kind of regularity so you know what you're aiming at. I read that list and I think through it. I, I think about whether or not I'm a double-tongued man. I pray about whether or not I'm a, a man who's a good manager of my home. You want to do that. You want to keep those things in front of you. We'll spend more time on that in about a month. Our fifth discipline is the hermeneutic. Second Timothy chapter two verse fifteen. Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul knows that his time on this earth is coming to an end. These are coming sort of his last words to his beloved son in ministry. And he says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The man who is shepherding his heart well is one who desires to be used by God, and he diligently equips himself by God's grace in readiness for whatever task it is that the Lord has for him. So be diligent to present yourself as one approved, as one who's ready, who knows how to handle the word. Lastly, we've been at Grace Bible Church for a while. You know what our vision is here. It's um, that in everything we do, we, we aim to seek the glory of the Lord in this, the glory of God. We don't want to seek our own glory in this. We know that the best way to go about doing that is to keep right in front of us the cross of Jesus Christ and that he actually hung on that cross in our place received on himself all of the fathers of wrath and fury for everything that we've done that's offensive to the lord and that we have the opportunity to live a new life a new life that's been transformed by the work of the holy spirit that's what our church is about here we function that way we aim at those things we think that way and so just renew your mind with that every week and we do that by drawing people in by building people up like they are here by sending people out back into their neighborhoods and their jobs And across the world. So those are our six disciplines. Uh, Praise God for them. Just keep those in front of you. Um, Our lives are filled with relationships, right? We've got relationships in our home. We've got relationships at work. We've got relationships in church. We've got relationships all over the place. And at the same time, we live in a fallen world. And so our relationships bear the effects of that fall. Um, We live with one another and we live in a sinful condition. We live in a fallen state with one another. And so in that condition, we find ourselves dealing with ones who are unruly. We find ourselves dealing with ones who are faint hearted. We find ourselves dealing with ones who are weak. God has a design for us and how we conduct ourselves and how we interact with ones who fall into those categories. He has an overarching instruction for us in light of all of those things. Um, Our heart here is for a stronger grace Bible church, um, an increasingly strong grace Bible church. And uh, part of getting there is by understanding God's design for how to care for one another and how to care for one another well. So let's pray and then we'll get into our study together, okay? Father, I thank you that you are mindful and you are thoughtful about us. You know us. You knew everything about us before you created this universe. Lord, you knew our condition. You understand us. And you revealed yourself to us in your word. And you explained ourselves to us in your word. Lord, here we see in this passage truths about us. and Lord, instructions for us that will guide us in how it is that we're to care for one another. I thank you again for each one of these men that they are here. I thank you for your grace to them. I thank you for salvation, saving faith, Lord, that you have given to us. Lord, I praise you for that. I pray for us today as we're looking at your word. Lord, apart from the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, these will just be words to us. I pray that you would grant us the right meaning and the right understanding. Lord, I pray that you would be the speaker here this morning. Uh, I pray for each one of my brothers here that you administer to them, that you administer to me. I pray for my voice, Lord, that it would continue. You'd be pleased to allow it to sustain. Lord, we want to be pleasing to you. We want to be a church that is increasingly more equipped to care for one another and care for those that you bring to us. I pray that this passage would help us towards that end. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about Paul's letter and his experience to the church in Thessalonica before we get into the particulars of of our verse today. Paul's relationship to the church in Thessalonica starts in Acts chapter 17. He is on his second missionary journey, and he has been in Philippi, and there was some persecution there. Philippi is up in the northern region of Macedonia. You have to sort of pretend that Scott's map is behind me and that I'm using his pointer And I'm pointing right now to the northern part of Macedonia. Paul was up there, and he was ministering there. There was persecution against him, and he left. He traveled about 100 miles, found himself in Thessalonica, and he stayed there for what Scripture says is three Sabbaths. And he was there, and he was teaching and preaching in the synagogue, and by God's grace, a church was formed. There were some Jews who were persecuting him in Philippi who followed him down to Thessalonica. There were other ungodly, evil men in Thessalonica that rose up against him. Uh, he had to leave, and so he left with Silas. He went down to Berea, uh, where he found some very noble minded people, and those who were in Thessalonica who were persecuting him followed him. Uh, he left Berea and he headed south further down and he finds himself in Athens he preaches in Athens and he eventually is joined by Silas and he heads over to Corinth and from Corinth he writes his letter to the church in Thessalonica remember he was only there for approximately a month or so something around that time and this is a young church Uh, this is a church that um, is very young but they were very eager so what I want to do is just capture kind of the first half of the letter for us, and then we'll talk a little bit about the second half of the letter before we dive into the passages in front of us. First half of the letter, Paul has thoughts for the Thessalonian church. He has thoughts for them. In chapter one, he talks to them about um, how thankful he is for the way in which they received the gospel message and the kind of person that he was and that his companions were when they brought the gospel message to them. He talks about how the gospel message has gone forth from them. They were faithful not only to embrace the message, but to take the message out to those who are around them. And their reputation was spreading throughout the Mediterranean world. People were aware that there was this new church in Thessalonica and there were changed lives that were taking place there. So in chapter one, Paul is, is very thankful for the way in which they received the gospel and the way that they, they stewarded that gospel. In chapter 2, Paul starts talking about the realities of the Christian life, that when you come to faith in Christ, you will experience persecution. And this church was no exception. And so Paul identifies with them. He says, you know, I know that you're, you're in a very difficult situation. In verse 14 in chapter 2, he says, you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, the same kinds of sufferings that were the church in Jerusalem was experiencing at the hands of their countrymen. So he, the second thing he does is he recognizes their persecution. He recognizes their situation. And, and He is their spiritual father. He cares for them. He loves them very much. And so he begins to wonder about how they're doing. He's concerned for them because he knows the situation that is there. He, he spent a month there, which was long enough for him to get the picture of what was taking place and what could possibly take place. And so he sent Timothy back to them to find out exactly how it is that they were doing that's what a lot of chapter 3 is about Timothy goes back up to Thessalonica and he visits with them and he returns with a very good report verse 5 of chapter 3 now Timothy has come to us from you and he has brought us good news of your faith and love so Paul is very encouraged he's comforted by that to know how they're doing again this is a, a very young church this is an extremely young church Not a lot of maturity in this church. There's sincere belief, there's strong belief, but it's a young church. They're living in a lot of tribulation, and they're persevering, and they're doing very well. They're doing very, very well. But Paul knows that it's a young church, and he knows that he only had about a month with them, and so he knows they need a lot of instructions on how to live. And that's what the second half of the letter is all about, starting in chapter 4. In verse 1, he sort of opens the case for them, and he says, Finally, then, brethren, we request and we exhort you in the Lord Jesus, as you receive from us instruction, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. He spends the rest of the letter telling them how to excel. He talks about several different areas, and the first one he mentions for them in chapter 4 is purity. How it is that you relate in relationship, especially to the opposite sex, he says... Um, these are people who are learning to walk in newness of life and he has to give them very clear guidelines on how it is that you possess your own body in sanctification and honor he talks to them a little bit after that about disciplined living these are people who understood that the coming of the Lord was coming and so they some of these people had actually ceased working they were waiting for the Lord's return they thought it was coming right away so they stopped working so Paul had instructions for them He also had instructions for them about the rapture. There was some sense of uncertainty and confusion about that. So the last half of chapter 4 is encouraging words about the return of Jesus Christ to rapture the church away. He gave them clear instructions about the dead will rise first, and then those who remain will be gathered together with them. There was also some lack of understanding about the day of the Lord and exactly what that was. So Paul spends the first several verses in chapter 5 outlining that for them. This is what the day of the Lord is going to look like. Starting in verse 12 through verse 15, he talks about relationships within the church. He talks about the way that the church itself needs to have a right relationship and be in right relationship with their elders and those who are in authority over them. And he also talks about how they need to be in right relationship with one another. And then he closes the letter, starting in verse 16, with talking about personal holiness and how it is that they, they develop a, a holy character. He mentions how you pray without ceasing, you rejoice always, you give thanks in all things. That's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Again, this is a, a young church, and all of this was very, very new to them. Um, and it was very necessary. These are not people who grew up with generations and generations before them who demonstrated Christian living to them. This was new stuff to them, and so he wrote to them about that. So we're going to take a look at the four instructions that he gives to them about how to relate to one another when you have a person who is one of three things. They're unruly, they are faint-hearted, and they are weak. He has a closing instruction for them. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter four, 5, verse 14. We urge you. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Let's look at the first instruction, admonish the unruly. And again, keep in mind, this is a really young church. And amidst suffering, there is some evidence that they had left their work responsibilities and they were waiting for the return of Jesus. Some evidence that some of them have done that. Paul must have known this somehow. He may have observed this and seen this while he was there with them. Or he may have received word of this somehow. Perhaps it was from Silas or Timothy after they rejoined him in Corinth. We don't exactly know, but Paul had some understanding that there were some there who were not working. We see that. In chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, at the end of verse 10, he starts and says, We urge you, he urges again, Brethren, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. There was probably some idleness that was in place there when Paul got there. Uh, There was probably an ongoing idleness. (laughs) His condition remained after Paul wrote his first letter. It was still in place when he writes his second letter to them. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, he talks about that in verses 6 through 11. In verse 6, he says, Keep away from the brother who leads an unruly life or an idle life. In verse 11, he says, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. They had set aside their everyday vocation, they were doing no work at all, they were acting like busybodies. So first, let's look at what it means to be unruly, and then after that, what we'll do is we'll take a look at what it means to admonish, okay? So the word unruly here is describing a person who is disorderly. It is someone who is out of rank, and they have deviated from a prescribed order or rule. The unruly one has deviated from a prescribed order or rule. This is a person who has advanced beyond a position of safety. And because of that, they've um, now exposed themselves to a significant degree of anger, danger. And there is an inherent character trait in this person. The character trait that's in them is that they lack the restraint to stay in the place that they need to stay. They lack restraint. This is not the person who has stumbled into sin once. This is a person whose pattern of their life, at least in this one area, is to wander outside of the authority that God has placed over them, outside of the guidelines, outside of the principles that God has placed over them. And the natural course of his mind is to retain his freedom in any way possible. Living under authority is just not part of his mindset. It's not part of his natural thought process. It's not something he desires to do. He's not, it's not something that he recognizes to be good for him. I gave this message to the ladies at Wellspring on Thursday morning, and um, so my illustration is maybe a little bit more suited for, for moms or for women, but I think it's going to work here as well. You know how you go to the pharmacist uh, when you're sick, and your pharmacist gives you medication, That medication comes with two things, and Vincent's going to help me with this. It comes with the required dosage, and it's going to come with the interval that you use the dosage, right? Well, the unruly one is the one who ignores the interval and the dosage, and they just take the medication in whatever course or whatever manner they feel like. And you can tell the results that are going to happen. The the dosages and the intervals are given for a reason. Um, The unruly one is the one who runs away from that. He has no thoughts of staying within the order that God has prescribed for him. So because this person has no thoughts of staying within the order that God has for him, what he needs is for those thoughts to be added to himself. Because those thoughts are nowhere to be found within him. And that's exactly what an admonishment is. The Greek word here is a compound word, And it means to place something in the mind. What is being placed in the mind is a warning of spiritual truth. Literally, to admonish is to place a warning into the mind. Notice the direction that's going on here that's taking place. You have something that's coming from outside of a person being placed inside of them because it's lacking in them. And this is not a a half-hearted, soft-spoken plea. This is something that is earnest. It is fervent, and it is sincere, it is stern. It's a sharp reproof designed to rescue the one who has stepped outside of their prescribed order. The one who is admonishing you is coming to you and he's saying, listen, you need this. This is lacking in, this, lacking in you. You really, really need this. Chances are you may not even know this. So I'm bringing something to you that you need. And it's a reproof that aims to do two things. It's a warning that aims to do two things. First, it shows them their sin. And secondly, it points them in a clear path of repentance from that. So what if you're saying, I might not know what the unruly one looks like? I've decided to put together a couple of examples that I think work. Let's say you have a man who is consistently complaining about the tasks that are being expected of him at work. He comes home every day and the first thing out of his mouth when his wife says, Hey, honey, how'd you do today? How was your day? How are you? The first thing that comes out of his mouth is a complaint. Oh, I had to do this. Or the situation there is unchanged. Or I can't believe they asked me to do this. That's his character. That's unruly. And the reason why is because it's stepping outside of God's design for him as a man to do his work unto the Lord. He's a man who consistently loses sight of the fact that he is to do his work as unto the Lord, whatever the circumstances are at work, regardless of whether he stands at work or he sits at work, whether he's surrounded by pleasant people and pleasant policies or unpleasant people and unpleasant policies, whether he has an easy job or a difficult job or whether he's well compensated or he's not. God's design for him is that he works unto the Lord. The Lord is his master. And when he comes home and his character is to complain, that man is an unruly man because he has stepped outside of God's design for him there. Another example is is a wife who continually strains against God's design for her and her husband's leadership in their home and in their marriage. She's always straining against that. She's trying to lead in every way possible. She's seeking to lead the marriage. She's seeking to lead the home. She's seeking to assume for herself a role that God has designed for a man. That's unruly because God has a design for spiritual equality and for role distinction. She's deviated outside of her role of leading the home if she always seeks to lead the home. Let's say you have a friend who continually out of his habit and out of the course of his life continually to overstep bounds in an area of freedom. Say he say there's an area of freedom and he continues to make unwise choices in that area of freedom and abuse that area of freedom. And a brother comes to him and speaks to him about it and he's ignorant of that, he's unresponsive to that. That person is unruly because he's losing sight of God's principle for how to live rightly within that area of freedom, whatever the area of freedom is. A fourth example could be a sheep who is consistently difficult to shepherd. A sheep who's hard and difficult to shepherd. Think of Hebrews 13.17 here. This is a one whose nature is so unteachable and so contrary that the elder's voice and the elder's work in his life is a grief and a labor and a hardship and a toil. The focus in these four examples is what kind of person the person is who's unteachable. But the examples here are or put forth to help us recognize some of what they could be. So let's talk for a minute about what, what unruliness is not. This is not um, someone who has stumbled recently into a pattern of sin. This is not someone who's, who's made one poor decision. Perhaps it's even a very poor decision. Let's say it's a rare outburst of anger, or something that's completely out of character for them in this area of their life. This is not what's being discussed here, even if it's a gross sin. What's being discussed here is something that's part of that person. It's part of their character. It's a trait of them. When you look at them, that's what you see in them. For someone who stumbles once in some area that's really bad, a different response is needed for that person. But the response also comes with a caution that says, if you persist in this, you are heading towards unruliness. So this is... A characteristic of a person that advances beyond the order and the role that God has for them. And the exhortation is a warning that's placed into their mind. So have that in in your own mind when you go to someone with an exhortation. You need to be bringing a warning that you want to place into their mind. So we might ask ourselves, how do I admonish this one? Let's not lose sight of the fact that we're working with Christians here. We're working with brothers. This instruction was given to brothers in Christ. I have six principles that will help us as we think about how to do this. Now that we understand a little bit more clearly what the unruly one is and what an admonishment is, let's look at six principles that we need to embrace as we seek to admonish the unruly one. The first one is, remember who you were before God saved you. One passage that can really help you with this is to commit Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3 through three, to memory. Consider some of the things that are discussed there. There's a person who's dead in their transgressions and sins, in which they formerly walked. They walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. It's really good to remember that you used to live in the lusts of your flesh, and you indulge in the desires of your flesh and your mind, and it's really good to remember That you are by nature a child of wrath, just like everybody else. That gives you a sense of humility that you need when you go to the person. So remember what kind of person you used to be and what God did to save you. Secondly, examine yourself before you go to them. Matthew chapter 7 is really, really good. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Verse 3, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly to actually help your brother. These are the words from our Savior, the good words. Thirdly, embrace gentleness when you do this. When you see someone who's unruly, they can be a very offensive person to be around in their unruliness. They can be. That doesn't give us license to be offensive back to them. We want to embrace gentleness when we do this. Galatians chapter 6, the first couple of verses are very, very helpful to remind us of what kind of people we need to be when we go to somebody. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself first so that you will not be tempted. Just because you're going to the person in gentleness does not mean that your admonishment is going to be a weak one. It doesn't mean that it's going to be lame or ineffective. The warning is in the content of what it is that you say. It's not in the, the volume that you use. It's not in the, the facial expression you use. Think most carefully about the content of what you want to say to them and, and how you want to be when you say that. Fourth principle, point them to their heart. This is an issue of their heart. The unruliness is the outward manifestation of, of something that's taking place in their heart. They love to step beyond the bounds, but that's not the true problem. The true problem is in their heart. Acts chapter 5. We have a story here of Ananias and Sapphira. They had sold a piece of property early on in the history of the church. And they bring the proceeds from that sale, some of the proceeds from that sale, and, and they misrepresented the proceeds for more than what it was. So when Peter is talking to Ananias, he says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It's his heart that is filled to lie. The point here is that the unruliness will continue until the unruly one determines in their heart to leave their sin. It's a heart issue. So point them to their own heart. Be ready to fifth principle here. Help them with a clear understanding of what biblical repentance looks like. If you've won your brother, he listens to you and says, yeah, you're right. Okay, what next? You need to have your finger in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. Because there God has been so careful, he's been so kind, he's actually spelled out for us what repentance truly looks like. There's biblical repentance. He's got six different characteristics, and I realize I've got a list within a list, so sorry about that. Kind of nested here, but You need to read these. These are really, really helpful. This is what biblical repentance looks like. The first one is a vindication of yourself. What was in place is no longer in place. You're living in a way that bears no evidence of being an unruly man. So tell your friend, aim to be one who vindicates yourself. The second characteristic is an an indignation over being an unruly. You look at yourself and you say, I can't believe what I just did. I am really disgusted over what kind of person I was and the testimony I gave about the gospel and its power, about the church and its place. I'm indignant at myself over what I've done. Another characteristic is a longing, a longing for the kind of relationship that one who is not unruly has with the God who saved them. Another characteristic of biblical repentance is a zeal. This is a pursuit of behavior that is the opposite of unruly, that they actually put some effort into this. They take some of the means of grace that God has given them and they apply those grace to being someone who is not unruly. What that has is it, has, it builds in the person a mindset that they no longer want to run towards unruliness. And the last thing is an avenging of wrong and avenging of wrong that you caused in your unruliness, is there, if there is any cost that somebody else has had to bear, if there is a hardship that someone has had to incur because of your unruliness, the one who is repentant from their unruliness eagerly desires to make that right with them. He desires to absorb that cost himself. And lastly, be clear about God's grace in the gospel. Have your other finger in Romans chapter 6. There are something like 17 grace truths in Romans 6 that talk about what is true about a believer that God has made certain of. Things that God has done in them that enable them to walk in a newness of life. My favorite is in verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Tell your unruly brother you have right within you as a believer... means to walk in a newness of life in a way that is not unruly verses 8-11 through are very meaningful as well it talks about how death is no longer master over Jesus and so sin is no longer master over you when Christ was raised from the dead he conquered sin he deposed sin, he dethroned sin as ruler over your life so when you enter into unruliness you're standing there in unruliness that no longer binds you you're choosing this of your own doing so those are six principles. So many of us are married. Many of us have a relationship with our wives. What if the unruly one is our wife? Well, I have a few principles here as well. If the unruly one is your wife, pray before you do anything. When you see the unruliness, don't run right at her. Don't run right at her with your hands up, your face red, Lots of volume. Go sit in your room and pray. Pray for a long time. Pray first. This is your wife. Go to her within your biblical role as her servant leader. Don't go to her as one who rules over her as a dictator. Go to her as your servant leader. I am your leader and I am serving you here. I want to love you as Christ loved the church. God knows you need another perspective in this. And as your leader, I want to bring that perspective to you. God's design in bringing us into this marriage together was so that we could speak into one another's lives. I want to do that here. I love you and I want what is best for you. I want what is best for us. Help her understand that this is how the body of Christ cares for itself. Point her to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Read the first phrase in the verse that goes up to the first comma and say the whole body, skip the middle part of it, read the end and it says, causes the growth in the body. The body causes the growth in the body. And how does it do it? You read the middle of the verse, each part functioning properly. Tell her, honey, I am coming to you by God's grace in an attempt to function properly and help you with this. We need to grow, and this is one way that God has given us to do this. Appeal to her on the basis of your unity as a married couple. Stay with me on this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 28 is very, very good. For Christ's instructions to the husband. Verse 28. Husbands love their wives as their own bodies. We need to make sure we get this. Stay with me on this one. For the longest time when I read this, probably the first 20 years of my marriage, I thought what this meant was, if I like the air conditioning set at 78 degrees, I should let my wife set the air conditioning at 78 degrees when I'm not here. I thought that's what I meant. I really did. I thought whatever I like, I need to allow that same thing for my wife. That's not what's happening here. What is happening here instead is what's in view is the unity of the two couples, the the unity of the, the husband and the wife as a couple. You love your wife because you are one. You're the same one. And your concern here is for you as one. And so you come to her because you're concerned about yourself as a couple, as one entity. you're not coming to her because of something that you want to see in her. You're coming to her with a concern about your marriage and you as as a couple, as a single entity. So what if um, your pursuit of her does not end up being productive? What if she's not receptive to your pursuit for one reason or other? Proverbs is a great place to go. And again, you don't go holding Proverbs eight feet in the air and bringing it down on her real hard on her little head. You don't do that. You come to her and you open Proverbs to chapter 11, verse 14. This is a verse that's very helpful and it says, Where there is no guidance, the people fail. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Do you want to have victory in this? And you need to heed counsel that's coming to you. You need this. That's Proverbs eleven fourteen, 14. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own wise, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. God has one description for the one who ignores counsel, who runs away from counsel, and that's that they're a fool. I don't want you to be a fool. I want to rescue you. You from this. Your unruliness is leading you to foolishness. I appeal to you, I implore you, I plead with you to run from this. So, the main idea here is that there's a person who has stepped outside of the order and the bounds that God has for them. What they need is they need a message, they need a warning to be spoken into their mind. So next, Paul addresses the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to be faint-hearted. Again, we have, I think, a compound word in the Greek here. The first word means little or small. The second half of the word means soul. So the faint-hearted is one who has a small soul. The faint-hearted one has a small soul. This is the only instance of this word in the New Testament. But it only needs to be brought up once to know that this kind of person exists. This person is the opposite of the one who is confident and assertive, has no fear, doesn't worry about hardships, runs into any situation. This is the opposite of a person who's seen a steady stream of success in their life for a long time. You look at them and everything just seems to be going so well. Their work is going well. Their parenting is going well. Their marriage is going well. They're healthy. They're successful in their battle with sin. They're just on top of it. The faint-hearted one is the opposite of that person. It's a person who becomes increasingly deflated as a difficult situation remains unchanged. They keep waiting for things to change and things never change. They just keep waiting and waiting and waiting, and because of that, they become deflated. They get a small soul. They may begin to entertain doubts over God's concern for them. They may start to withdraw from the body. They may release themselves from relationships. I'll give you some examples of what it means or what it might look like to have a small soul. Let's say you work in an industry where some kind of certification is very important. You have to take that test and you take that test the first time and you have to take that test a second time and a third time and a fourth time because you're not passing the test and you're studying for the test. You're preparing for the test and you're just not passing the test and you're watching everybody else pass the test who works with you. They have opportunities that you don't have. Um, You're not passing the test. I know somebody who took the Arizona bar four times. I have a friend who took a professional engineer exam that gives him his license to practice engineering in another state. He took it three times. And he was small-souled. There are people who take the nursing boards that my daughters are taking within the next couple of months. Not everybody passes that. You've worked really hard for four years, You've got this big boards test in front of you, you can take it again later, but it's easy to become faint hearted not passing that. Let's say there's a significant degree of sin between a husband and his wife in either direction. Here's another example. And the one who was the offending party, the one who sinned, goes to the one who was offended, and they seek their forgiveness. They seek reconciliation. They seek to make things right. They seek to restore the relationship. They do it biblically. They get some leadership in their church alongside them. They, they need the help. They, they've done everything right. They've prayed about it. They're, they're beginning a path of repentance. They've got people who are helping them walk in that path of repentance. They're going to their spouse, and their spouse is just unreceptive. Their spouse has no interest in reconciling This person has godly intent. They have every aspiration to do what is right. Um, They're hoping for reconciliation and it's not happening. When that goes on for a long time, that person can become faint hearted. They can have a small soul or a small spirit about them. One other example let's say you have a loved one, an elderly parent who requires a lot of care from you. And because of circumstances, that care is pretty much fallen on you. It's your responsibility for one reason or another. And that person that you're providing care for is someone that you love, and in principle they love you as well. But they're very difficult to care for. They're very demanding. They're very unappreciative. Um, they place demands on you and requests upon you that are hard, that infringe on important things in your life. That persists for some period of time. That person can become faint-hearted. The thessalonians were becoming faint hearted or small souled because they were suffering under persecution i mentioned chapter 2 verse 14 earlier paul says you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen even as you did from the jews in chapter 3 that's why paul sent timothy back to them chapter 3 verse 4 he says so we verse 3 uh, verse 2 rather So we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you so that none would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that you have been destined for this. Paul knew that these were people who were afflicted. He knew that they had a small soul. And so he knew that what they needed was encouragement. The wicked Jews weren't going away. They were going to stay They saw their place of prominence, their their place of influence, their place of affluence being taken from them. And they didn't want to go away easily, so Paul knew that this was going to be an enduring problem. So he encourages them. Let's take a look at the word encouragement or encourage. I think it's another compound word. The first part of the word means close beside. And the second part of the word means... Soothing or comforting speech. So, to encourage is to bring comforting words from close proximity. Bringing comforting words from close proximity. A couple of observations about encouragement. First, effective encouragement comes from someone who is near you. If you want to provide encouragement to somebody, you need to be near to that person. Today, with modern technology, we have lots of ways we can be near to people. Paul is writing 2,000 years ago, and to encourage someone, you have to be in their life together. This is a friend who's close beside. A friend who is near is one who is willing to leave their own comfort zone. They're willing to leave their own schedule. They're willing to leave some of their own obligations in order to care for you. They're not kept away from you. They're not distanced from you by a distaste over your unpleasant circumstance that made you faint-hearted even though his life might be a, a mass of, of problems, even though you're very needy and you're very difficult, the one who encourages isn't bothered. They're not phased by any of that. They're eager to step into your life to give you comfort that you need, whatever your situation is like. If you're unwilling to enter into an unpleasant situation and walk alongside of a friend, how can you bring the encouragement to the one who's in that situation? You're not near to them. So one of the important things to understand about encouragement is that you have to be willing to be near the other person. And sometimes that's going to be costly for us. We need to be willing to do that. So ask yourself, do I have any bias against a circumstance that will curtail my readiness to be near somebody? Secondly, if I set a level of activity and a level of busyness in my life it would make it impossible for me to help the faint-hearted one. Am I so busy that I don't have any margin in my life to help someone by getting near to them? A couple of good things to keep in mind. Second observation about encouragement is that it comes from somebody who has a comforting message within them. A comforting message is a message that actually brings comfort to the other person. And it's a message that does two things. First, it acknowledges their situation. You don't come to someone without acknowledging what it is that they have in front of them. I understand your situation. This is really hard. Second thing it does is it brings the hope of the gospel. The most comforting message you can ever bring to someone is a gospel message. Because encouraging your friend with gospel truth resets their perspective. Their situation may have been so prolonged it may be, they may be enduring for such a long time that they've just lost sight of some things that they know to be true. So when you go to that person, you go to them and you're, you're encouraging them with God's choice of them, Christ's suffering on their behalf. And this is important. God's grace that has been lavished upon them to help them in this present trial. Remind them of their place in eternity, where they're going. This is only going to last, at most, a lifetime. And after that, you have an eternity in front of you of worshiping God and serving Him in a place where everything is made right. So you can ask yourself, do I know the gospel well enough to use it in a way that's encouraging to somebody? Or is my grasp on the gospel something that when I say it, it reeks of an insensitivity or an arrogance? If something is going to be comforting, it needs to be winsome. Do I know the gospel well enough to use it in a winsome way? Secondly, do I regularly encourage myself with the gospel truth? Am I already doing this in my own life when I encounter trials of various kinds? We don't want to go to somebody with a message that we don't preach to ourselves first. So we sing that Paul brings encouragement to the church in Thessalonica based on two things. He encourages them in their present position in Christ. And he encourages them with their future position in Christ. In chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says to them, We sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that you would not be disturbed. He reminds them that they have faith, and he encourages them with that. The encouragement comes first and foremost by reminding them of their identity in Christ. In the second letter, the persecution has grown stronger. We see that in verse 4 of chapter 1, in the opening part of the second letter. He speaks of their perseverance and faith in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. In chapter 2, verse 13, in his second letter, he says, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So he says to them, You're beloved by the Lord. The Lord loves you. And because he loves you, he chose you from the beginning for salvation. That's where your true identity is. Your true identity is not one who has this problem that persists. Your overarching identity is one who has been chosen by God from the beginning for salvation. So remember that. But also encourage them in their future position. Both of these letters are eschatological in their nature. And one of the things that's very important about that is that when you think about eschatology, that's very, very encouraging for the believer. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, Just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring you, in verse 12 he says, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Think about the encouragement of that. God is calling the one who's faint-hearted into his kingdom and his glory. This is not a group text message that's sent out to everybody in the world and you can respond if you want. This is a very specific and very effectual call that God has placed in one person's life to draw that person to him. That's encouraging. He also encourages them at the end of chapter 4. They're really concerned about the the return of Christ and what happens to the dead people. If you want to be encouraged with future events, read... 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 18. It says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That was very encouraging to the Thessalonians because they were wondering, what about these people who have died? Don't they go to heaven? Paul says, yes, they do. They're going to rise first right in front of you. And then he says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Imagine that. You're going to be released from this world, taken up into the clouds to meet Jesus, to reside in a place that he's prepared for you. So how can I tell if my brother is faint-hearted? Remember, the main thing here is that they have a small soul. Their soul is small. They're, They're very, very small in their spirit. This is a person who might have a good understanding of their situation. They understand the theology of what is happening. They understand from James 1 that that God uses trials to grow us in maturity and completeness. But this is a person who just needs to hear the words spoken to them that they probably already know. Someone who is faint-hearted probably has a pretty good understanding of what's happening, but they just need to be comforted with the truth that they probably already know. Okay. So that is encouraging the faint-hearted. Now we're going to talk briefly about helping the weak. Literally, the weak one is the one who's lacking in strength. Nothing new there. The one who's weak is lacking in strength. Physically, I'm getting weaker. I'm much less strong than I was 20 years ago. There's no kidding in that. Um, But the main focus here is not on a physical weakness. What's in view here is someone who is lacking spiritual strength. Okay, It's not a physical problem primarily here. This is somebody who's easily misled. This is someone who lacks discernment. This is someone who regularly demonstrates poor judgment. This is somebody who's not inclined to use Scripture to inform their decisions. This is somebody who um, has a worldview that's not informed by Scripture at all. This is someone who might be gripped by fear as they view a situation from a secular rather than a biblical perspective. This is someone who falls into patterns of sin easily. And the reason why they do is because they lack spiritual strength. And so what this person needs is this person needs help. They need help of a spiritual kind. They need help in using scripture to lead their thinking and their perspective and their worldview. That's what that person needs most of all. Obviously, there's going to be a material need. Obviously, there's going to be a physical need for someone who's weak. Whatever it is, you can imagine what it is. And that does need to be addressed. But the first fundamental issue that we need to address, where we need to point most of our attention with the one who is weak, is helping restore, helping insert into their life spiritual strength. Some of the Thessalonians were weak in their understanding of the return of Christ. They thought return Christ's return was imminent. They thought it was any day now. And so this led some of them to make very poorly informed choices about their work, which I mentioned earlier. Verse 11 of chapter 4, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend your own business, work with your hands. I mentioned that it got so bad, Paul had to write to them again in his second letter. They're becoming busybodies because they're doing no work at all. He helps them with clear teaching regarding the return of Jesus. He points them to that in the first opening verses of chapter 5. and He helps them understand the day of the Lord and how that's distinct from the return of Jesus. But his help to them comes in two parts. Firstly, he clearly teaches them about Christ's return, how it will be sudden, it will be unpredictable. And second, he gives them instruction to build one another up. Chapter 5, he says in verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another, and build up one another just as you also are doing you need to increase one another's spiritual strength you need to grow one another's spiritual strength by speaking biblical truth to them so biblical help is often aimed at strengthening the brother's biblical foundation this is the lens through which they review the world so that they can live a more productive life for the Lord they're not encumbered by so many sins and weaknesses that means that we don't always help in the way that seems the most obvious. When you see a weak person, they, they manifest that weakness in a way that's very obvious to see. You, you can't miss it when you look at it. Um, they may have a very real physical need, like I said, but what they truly need is to be strengthened in their underlying principles their, their spiritual understanding. Let's give a couple examples. Let's say you have a person who is always pressed. To meet their monthly bills they always are pressed they have a steady job but for some reason somewhere in the middle of a third week towards the fourth week of the month they're running short on cash and it's happening all the time do they have a physical need of course they do they need money for rent or groceries or whatever else it is their car payment um, but what has happened here is that they've consistently squandered the opportunity to equip themselves such that they're qualified Um, to pursue work that has um, more opportunities to it. The biggest need here is not the $75 or whatever it is they need to cover rent. The biggest need is a better understanding of biblical stewardship with the money that the Lord has given to you. That's one example of a person who's weak. Let's say there's a guy and he's a single guy and he cannot stop talking about a particular girl. He's always talking about her. He's talking about... Her appearance, he's talking about her face, he's talking about her figure, he's talking about how funny she is and how vivacious she is. She's even smart. He's always talking about those things. Biblically speaking, this guy is not smitten with her. That might be true on the outside, but what's really happening here is this man has a weakness. And here's what his weakness is his weakness is that he has a poor understanding of what is precious to the Lord. Tristan doesn't have a good grip on first Peter chapter three where Peter is speaking very clearly as to God's design for the woman who would make a good mate. He says, he mentions things like being chaste and respectful in their behavior. Their adornment, guys, their adornment is not merely external. It's not one who has an undue focus on them, their appearance. It relates to the hidden person of the heart, someone who has a quiet and a gentle spirit. <coughs> when we think about helping one who is weak we have to ask ourselves am I discerning enough to recognize when my friend is weak and can I see what the real issue is here do I recognize through their comments about money or time or anything else that it's pointing to a weakness in their understanding of biblical truth can I see past the outer layer of whatever it is to, to what the underlying principle is you know, do I understand their root need their root need is not the immediate need and their root need is the underlying need so that's the one who's weak And again the main idea with the one who's weak is the one who is spiritually weak who lacks a biblical foundation and our help to them is by growing their biblical foundation lastly we need to be patient with everybody and the one who's patient is the one who is long-tempered. Okay? He's the one who doesn't respond immediately in anger. He doesn't respond immediately to an offense. Um, he understands that the unruly one, understands that the faint-hearted one and the weak one, if they're brothers, they are on a path of sanctification. And it's a lifelong path, and it's going to take time. And he's willing to walk with them as long as you need to. Your, needs may, your method of walking with them might change over time, but that you're committed to that person. You're just going to stay in their life. You're going to bear with them. And in that process, it's, it's really important to remember that the Lord is committed to finishing the work that he began in them and that he might just be using you as an instrument in their life as part of that commitment that he has to finish the work that he began in them. So this is a little bit of a shorter section, but the idea there is is understand that that your brother in Christ, or perhaps it's a sister in Christ, is on a path of sanctification that is under the Lord's control and he may just be using you as an instrument in their lives. I got a couple of questions from the ladies um, Thursday morning, and one of the questions was, is it possible for a person to be more than one of these things at the same time? For example... Can the faint-hearted one be also the weak one? I got to be thinking about that. I think the answer is yes. Let's say you are one who is weak. And in your weakness, you make some really poor decisions. You make some decisions that have some very long-lasting implications to them. This will cause a prolonged commitment or prolonged change in your lifestyle. that over the course of time, you might grow very faint-hearted in that. So, what started, what originated as something that was weak, a decision that came out of their weakness, might have implications that cause them to grow faint hearted over time, for example, um, a person who 's lacking in their biblical understanding of money doesn 't understand that God is the one who owns all things and he 's entrusted money to us, might make decisions about money as if it only belongs to them. You know how it is when when um, you care for something differently when it belongs to somebody else than when you care for it if it belongs for you. Example I like to use if you're driving somebody else's car, you're a little more careful with their car than if you're driving your own car. My son is driving my car right now, so. Um, <laughs> um, I'm hoping that he's being more careful. <laughs> um, if you view money as your own, you're not going to treat money as carefully as if you view it as if it belongs to the Lord. So if you view money as your own, and from that weak understanding, you enter into a financial obligation that you haven't been careful in praying about and you haven't been careful in seeking counsel for, there might be some really, really long-term implications to that. It started with a weakness, a biblical weakness. But it might end in a person being very faint-hearted because they want to be faithful. They want to keep their word but it's just hard. It's really, really hard. Let's say you're a young woman and you're lacking a biblical foundation in God's design for intimacy and relationships. You have no understanding of of God's design. You view relationships as, I want to be with a guy because he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, he's attractive, he has a good job, he has an even better car. um, All of those things. Um, She makes a very poor choice and she gives herself to him. And together they conceive a child. Um, she didn't seek counsel. She didn't look for help. Again, the origin is a weakness. A weakness in her understanding. But it doesn't take much imagination to understand it. But in the absence of some very generous, very helping family members, this person is going to be faced with a lot of things that could cause them to grow faint-hearted. The daunting task of raising a child alone would cause anybody, it would cause me to be faint-hearted. And praise God that I was blessed in not having to do that. Those are two examples of ways in which one who is weak could become faint-hearted. I think it's possible that the faint-hearted could become weak, but I think the weakness there might be a physical weakness. Um, let's say you're in a situation that's, that's so long, it's, it's enduring, and you're persevering, but it is just hard. It takes a toll on you. You're providing care for an elderly parent, and it is just hard, and it wears you down. And There's someone very near to me I love very dearly, it's a good friend of mine. He's on the elder board with me, and and he is persevering well. He's persevering so well. But it is costly to him, and it is taking a lot out of him to care for an aging parent. Uh, so there, the weakness might be more of a finan- or a, a physical weakness. Just if it's tiring, it takes a lot out of you, especially as you yourself get a little older. Um, it's hard for me to, to understand how a person becomes spiritually weak through being faint-hearted. Maybe that does happen, but... Um, not something that occurred to me as I thought and prayed through So, so that's it.